You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. I'm excited to jump into our, our brand new sermon series, Colossians. Uh, we have this uh, kind of series, a study on Colossians, uh, where we're going to be walking through over the next 10 weeks, hopefully. Uh, we'll be finishing this book right before Christmas time. I know, I'm already mentioning that, right? Advent, Christmas. Uh, but we're going to be looking to walk through uh, this book of Colossians, a short little letter. Uh, but it's jam-packed, full of wonderful um, truth. And so I'm really thrilled to get into that. If you joined us this summer, uh, we walked through the entire Bible uh, in uh, 13, 14 weeks, something like that. Uh, this summer we walked through a sermon series called Long Story Short. Now this sermon series is gonna be taking a little bit of a different dive in the sense we had a big zoom out approach to the entire Bible and the story of the Bible and we covered a lot of material in a short amount of time. And what we're gonna be doing in this series is zooming in, and if the team could bring up that circular graphic for the kind of the whole sermon series, that'd be good. We're gonna be looking at how Christ is the center of all things, and so in some sense, it'll feel a little bit like our sermon series through Long Story Short in the sense that we are asking big questions, but really what we're doing is focusing, zooming in on, I kid you not in my Bible, four pages of the Bible, where we're gonna be really looking in depth and in detail in, on Jesus Christ and his centrality to our faith. And so as we zoomed out and we found through the entire Bible that Jesus is the center of the entire Bible and he is the one who we were all longing for and looking for as the Messiah, now we take that Jesus, that Messiah, and we place him in the center of this theological framework which is Colossians, this amazing, beautiful, um, powerful, jam-packed book of Jesus, this letter uh, is gonna be really deep as it gets into the details of, of your life, of all the variety of changes that we go, and almost like spokes on a wheel, we're gonna be looking at a variety of different things that revolve around Jesus in our lives, um, in our marriages, in our households, in our workplaces, in our spiritual life, in our faith, in our hope, in our church, um, in our redemption, and our salvation, and how Christ is the center. This letter, um, someone was saying this idea, it's almost like, you ever heard of like fruit juice concentrate, right? You have this concentrated fruit juice uh, with all the water removed. Uh, Colossians is four chapters, four pages, very short letter, one of the shortest letters that Paul writes. And it is jam-packed. It is like Jesus Christ concentrate, okay? <laughs> He's almost on every other verse, every other um, line. It's thick. It's powerful. It's not really watered down in any way. Uh, it, it's kind of every new paragraph, there is something going on here. And so Colossians is a, is a, is a, is a very detailed book about Jesus Christ. And, and he's teaching us to really present Jesus as the center of all things, the center of our theology, so that we're able to counteract the false things in the world. We're able to not allow things to draw our attention away from Jesus, but rather that he is the center of, of our life, our theology, and our practice, and our churches. And so there are many things that will come in. In fact, the, the occasion and purpose of the letter of Colossians 
was that there was a certain brand of false teaching within the church that was drawing people's attention away from the sufficiency of Christ. That Jesus Christ was important, but he wasn't really all that important and he wasn't sufficient. You need all of these other things added into your faith in order to uh, allow you to be saved in all of this. And so what I wanna do is read these. Uh, in fact, we're gonna be looking at the first eight verses of uh, Colossians. What I wanted to do is actually read verses 15 through 17 because today we're going to begin with a little bit of an overview of the book and then we're going to hone in on the first eight verses very briefly. And so I'm going to be trying to present this, this center of all things picture. And in Colossians 1 uh, verses 15 through 17 you'll, you'll catch on to what uh, is going on here as it's talking about the preeminence of Jesus Christ and his nature as divine and all-powerful. And so in verse 15, it begins with actually, which is like a hymn, really, and we're gonna look at that later, but this this Colossians 1.15, it says, he is the image, this is Jesus. Jesus is the image or the icon of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, or granted all authority of the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Or some of your translations might say all things consist They are all held together. It's as if the entire cosmos is hanging on in the balance, wrapped together and tied together by Jesus Christ himself. And so if you would bear with me for a moment as we zoom out back to the beginning and we think about in our own hearts and our minds, even where we are right now, in this little blip in time, as, as we stand here, or as, sorry, we, I stand here, you sit here, and we are together in this blip on this massive timeline of eternity. And as we find ourselves in our grand cosmology, that's a big word for saying the study of the cosmos, the, uh, the universe, and we, we think very big for a moment. How do you see yourself in the world? sitting right here where you're at. As I've said before, if you kind of zoom out and view yourself like a Google map or Google Earth, you ever done that? I think Google Earth allows you to do it. I don't know if Google Maps does, but if you take your two fingers, right, and you zoom out from your house or your spot, wherever you are, and you zoom out and zoom out, and then there's a lot of those really cool videos online that you can see when someone continues to zoom out and zoom out and zoom out, and eventually you see the entire sphere of the Earth, or as someone say, that pale blue dot on the night sky, that earth as we zoom out and zoom out further and further and eventually you get to see the planets of Jupiter and Saturn and then you zoom out from there and you continually go further and further and all of a sudden the earth is what was once so big and important is now so small in comparison to all of the things surrounding it and and we zoom out and you eventually see the Milky Way galaxy and certainly that has to be you know, the real center of the entire universe. There's nothing beyond the Milky Way with the billions and billions and billions or trillions and trillions of stars that are within our nebula galaxy. But then we find that as we zoom further from there, there's 
there was even more and more and more. And maybe you've seen those videos as it goes and it kind of gives you even the distances apart as the light years and how big and vast and massive. And then our heads begin to kind of freeze up because it's almost impossible for us to truly fathom how big the universe really is if we're just saying universe, like the biggest term that you can even imagine, all things that are created, like everything out there of how big that is. And then really in a sense, if we were to zoom all the way back in to really how small I am. Our perspective to the earth and our placement here in the universe, my existence here on this little longitude, latitude line, you know, in comparison to the fact that even today, when we, in our modern worlds, we have a very real sense of that. I can, on my screen, on my phone, I can see exactly where I am and how big and where things are located. I mean, we got satellites going up everywhere. You know, we've been to moon, to the moon. We're headed to Mars. And frankly, nowadays, we're just sending civilians up into space for the fun of it, you know, because <laughs> we can. And so, like, we in our modern ways, in our modern um, godlike status, have placed ourselves in the universe as, as really prominent and important, and we are. But in comparison to the center of all things, there is something that is maybe a little out of whack with the way we look at the world. I mean, it hasn't always been this way. If you look back in history, you study way, way, way back, maybe you can remember Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic model of the world where the world for many years and what was known during those times in the medieval ages and all this time period viewed the world through a geocentric theory. Have you ever heard of that? You're like, wow, you're bringing back memories here that I haven't thought of for a long time. Geocentric, not hard to see or understand that the earth is the center. All things revolve around the earth, right? Sounds logical. Um, and then we began to learn as uh, data and science grew and then even a, a religious priest named Copernicus presented to the church and to the people at that time that, that this doesn't seem to add up. So he did a variety of scientific studies and it seemed that he presented what was known as the heliocentric theory. You heard, you heard of that? And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I know all this stuff, you know, right? Okay, and I, I'm like, oh, I know all this stuff, and then I'm over here Googling things, right? Wikipedia, oh, yeah, you know, so I, I get to sound really smart as if I know all this stuff, but really, Google and Wikipedia help me out a lot. Uh, they're my best friends. So you have this geocentric theory. You have this heliocentric theory where the helio aspect is that the sun is the center of the universe, and really, in particular, our little galaxy here with Jupiter and Venus and Mars and Saturn and I can't remember the rest, right? And you have all those that revolve around the sun and yet Copernicus and others who were presenting that theory were actually presented it to the church and um, I believe they were jailed for this and others were threatened and uh, were viewed as almost heretics for presenting this kind of a theory that the sun was the center. And then it was not till almost um, in the 17th century, a hundred, nearly a hundred years later after Copernicus's death, when you get some of the scientists like Kepler, Johannes Kepler, I believe it is, and Galileo and Newton, right, with the apple falling on his head, at least that's the theory, and where they finally began to amass um, uh, uh, data and information to support this heliocentric universe. 
They laid down the mathematical foundation to explain the motions of the planets in extreme precision. Galileo collected mountains of observational evidence supporting heliocentrism and challenging the classic Aristotle theory and then Ptolemy's aspect of this geocentrism. And then later on, if you were to fast forward, even in the future, there was this sense that grew a long period of time of this gastrocentrism, where the, the, this kind of our galaxy, this galactrocentrism, this galaxy that we're in is the center of the entire universe, that the Milky Way and the sun, right there, we are the center. And then we began to realize that maybe that's not even all there is. And maybe you're familiar with Edwin Hubble, I think in the 50s, eventually put up a telescope up in and was able to determine that, that there are galaxies upon galaxies, nebula upon nebula, you could say stars upon stars upon stars, that our little solar system seems to be small in comparison to the solar systems all out there, beyond our wildest imagination. And so science has gathered and gained for us information and knowledge, but when we look in Colossians, you're like, well, Jordan, how does this tie into Colossians? In Colossians, we don't find necessarily a lot of science, you could say. But what we do have is a a theological framework where Colossians is giving you a study of God through the lens of Jesus Christ and centering you around Jesus. He is giving you knowledge and information to then be applied to then have your entire world revolve around Jesus. Colossians, you could say, is like this handbook of life. It gives us the key to understanding and the key to understanding is found in Jesus and him alone. Christ is the key to unlocking the mysteries of the world, you could say. And understanding him is also our position in that we are very small in comparison to this massive universe and in comparison to the power and the magnitude and the majesty of God found in Jesus Christ. But we are also, for some reason, on this pale blue dot, we seem to be of some importance for the fact that Jesus has come to our earth and has chosen to save us. Though we are very far away, Jesus comes near and dwells with us. So it is in this position that we find ourselves where we are gaining knowledge about the world and modern man likes to place themselves. The fact that I have an iPad or an iPhone and Tesla's making cars or shooting people up over here into the atmosphere and we're, we're headed to Mars, we're doing all these amazing things, we tend to put ourselves in the center of the universe. Science will win the day and rule the world for science can always be trusted. <laughs> okay, sorry. I knew you guys would like it. Right but really, right, we often say science is bad, but it's aspect that science has been made into this God to be worshiped. And I found this quote, some of you have maybe heard of it, Robert Jastrow. It says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, eventually the story ends like a bad dream. For he, in all his work, has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's amassed data, he is about to conquer the highest peak And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries, right? I like to say that because I'm a pastor, right? 
But it's this aspect that we, we glorify science as the center of all things and will fix all the world's problems and will save us one day. Or we ourselves are in the center of all things and all things revolve around me. Or the fact that Colossians presents to us a beautiful aspect, a beautiful display of one of the greatest works of theology that is the study of God himself. And it is not just this concept of like this, um, this mind of like let's just study up here in the clouds that has no effect to my personal life here and now. In fact, what we think about God often is said to, have be, to be the most important thing about us. And often the what you're doing in your life and what you're choosing not to do often, if not most directly, reflects what you think about God or what you do not think about God. I can most often point back to the way you view God and the way you have viewed your relationship with Jesus Christ in the way your life is evidencing fruit or not evidencing fruit. And so Colossians tells us to be soaked up with Christ, to focus on Jesus and to allow that to permeate us from our very being so that that would work itself out in love for our fellow mankind and then worship God himself. So one author, Douglas Moo, says that the key religious theme throughout Colossians is the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in this passage we read earlier, just a portion of it, the most famous Christological passage is known actually in the early church as one of the first hymns, the first song that you could say in the early church that was developed into this hymn was this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, for he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent everything he would be preeminent. He is central in both creation of all things and the recreation of all things. The new that we long for. He is making all things new. And so in this, what I wanna do is I'm gonna run through a few basic concepts that you could say you could pull out of Colossians And I'm not gonna attempt even for you to even follow me. I don't think the booth needs to try to follow me through the passages I'm gonna be looking at because I'm just gonna be jumping through different passages. But I want us to just think for a moment how Jesus is the center of all of these things that I mention here and how we find them in Colossians. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna jump right into the first couple of verses of Colossians and start us off, okay? So, Jesus, we find, is really a summary of the whole book. We find in Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14, you have this beautiful picture of light and dark. And it says that Jesus is the center of our redemption. It begins often with this presentation of salvation. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Wow. And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the center 
of our redemption being purchased back, the center of our transformation, the center of our reconciliation, these big theological terms. He is the center. And the kingdom of Jesus that Jesus has been preaching all through the gospels, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is being preached even here in this moment that he has transferred us from darkness into light. And that looks like now a new kingdom in which we are led by a new king for Jesus is our king. And now we have been redeemed from that dark world of of sin and slavery and we have been set free for now we are forgiven. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Jesus, as we read earlier, is the center of all things. All things revolve around God. For by him all things were created and in heaven and on earth, visible and visible. I read it. All things, all things, all things. He is before all things. And by him all things consist and hold together. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Colossians 1, 24 says that now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. But I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, the church. For Jesus is the center of the church. And in our church, he ought to be the center. And Jesus is the center of our growth. In verse 24, Colossians 1, 24, it says, um, oh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 28. Verse 28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That our growth and our maturity is centered around Jesus Christ. It is in following Jesus Christ. It is being made by the Holy Spirit of God more and more like Jesus Christ. Jesus is also the center of our faith. Chapter two, verse six and seven. Many would say chapter two, verses six and seven is really the theme thesis verse for the whole book. You can even circle it, underline it, look at those chapter two, verse six and seven in your Bibles. You can look at that central verse and you could say that's kind of that key verse in which the whole book of Colossians revolves around. But in Colossians two, verse six and seven, therefore as you have received Christ, You have received him, Christ Jesus the Lord. So now walk in him. You are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith and just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So Jesus is the center of our faith. He's the center of our Christian life, you could say, in the sense that today you're walking in something. And Colossians is presenting, let us walk in Christ, in him And we'll look at more as we go through this series of what that really looks like and means. Colossians 2 verse 17 says that he is ultimately, and I'm even skipping over many of these things, but really uh, Jesus is the center of our, you could say, religion. And I know that term is very faux pas in these todays, but this idea of this religion is the sense that even today we're at a religious service. We are here religiously practicing the way of Jesus now, the whole book of Colossians is often saying do not focus on religion as if that's the source of your faith. Rather, the religious practices that all of us go through of Bible reading and prayer and worship and singing, these religious practices are an outgrowth or an outpouring of our faith in Jesus and our relationship in him. And so he's saying these, are the, these things that you practice, they are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance, the real physical sense of reality and relationship and the physical existence of faith and Jesus and salvation and all that there is, the substance belongs to Christ. These other things are often mere shadows pointing to Christ. 
So Jesus is the center of, you could say, our religion. Jesus is the center of our resurrection. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Oh, it's a beautiful verse. (laughs) If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, for he is seated at the right hand of God. He has all authority and power. He is alive. He has been raised so that you too can be raised. So, so we seek where that is coming, where it is reserved. That faith is preserved for us in heaven, as it says in chapter one. So he is the center of our resurrection and our hope, and our minds must be set on him in the hope that is found in our future resurrection. We see also, really, in Colossians 3, maybe even the entirety of the chapter, that he is the center of our life. The life that we have and experience, Colossians 3, verses 3 through 4, And it begins by saying in verse three, for you have died, (laughs) for you have died, and yet your life is hidden with Christ. So Jesus, the center of my life, for I have died, but my life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's the center of our life. He goes on in Colossians 3, verse 15. He is the center of our peace. For all the peace that we experience in life comes solely based on the fact that Jesus is alive. Look at this, Colossians 3, verse um, 15. After love has bound everything in perfect harmony, it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you have been called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace that passes all understanding be with you, right? This idea, where does that peace come from? That peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. The center of our peace. He is the center of our, really, the end of chapter three and into chapter four. It is found that Jesus, and I'm not gonna read them, Jesus ought to be the center of our marriages, our relationships, and our workplace environments. And as a boss-employee relationship, Jesus better be the center of that relationship for those of you who own companies and have employees, for it addresses you in there as well. And so Jesus really permeates every aspect of your entire life, you know? Isn't that incredible? What is it in life that really permeates all things? Colossians is telling us, Jesus is central to all things. Christ is overall. Not only is he the center of the universe, not the earth or the sun, but Christ is the center also of our theology, which is vitally important for how we live day in and day out. There can be then, as one commentator says, no doubt about Paul's intention to make the centrality and the supremacy of Christ central to all things that then allows us to stand against the false things in the world, the lies of the devil, for rather Jesus becomes the thing that defeats those in our lives. So with all that, as we looked at the entire Colossians uh, really quickly as we focused in on that, I wanna take just a few brief moments to look at the first couple of verses. So look with me at Colossians 1, uh, verses one through eight. 
So Colossians 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed is in the whole world It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned from it, it, uh, as you learned of it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. First thing we see right here at the beginning is the uh, opening and the greeting which is very traditional for Paul's writing. You have this beginning where Paul says, hello, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here's my friend Timothy. Timothy is most likely writing the letter as Paul dictates the letter to him. Timothy, a student of Paul, some would say even maybe Paul's best friend. Timothy and Paul are together throughout a variety of things, and the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are letters by Paul written directly to Timothy as a young minister or pastor, um, elder in the church. And so Paul is also stating his apostleship that he, Paul, has been with Christ, seen Christ. He has witnessed these things. He has been given the authority by God to proclaim this as an apostolic ministry. And so he is saying, in a way, I have the authority to say what I'm about to say. God has designated with me authority. And yet, do not discount your beloved servant and pastor, Epaphras. So in verse seven, you saw his name mentioned. Paul mentions Epaphras. Uh, He is the pastor of that church at Colossae. He's one of the chief elders there and he is the person who is probably uh, viewed as the person who founded the church at the city of Colossae in Asia Minor there in Turkey. Paul, many would say, probably didn't found this church and maybe didn't frequent this church very often. He spent more time in a nearby town of Ephesus where you get the book of Ephesians. And so here uh, we see this picture of, of Paul writing a letter on behalf of Epaphras for he knows maybe Epaphras has met with Paul and told him about the things that are going on in his church and he needs some help in establishing a real true doctrine and handbook that goes against the false teaching that Epaphras and his church is up against. And so he writes this book of Colossians. But if you were to skip to the very end of Colossians, the last three verses, you'll see that Paul is writing this book from a place... um, a little bit further away, many people would say he's probably in Rome at this time. And he says, give my greetings, in verse 15 of Colossians 4, give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea, which is a nearby city, and to Nymphia and the church that is in her house. And when his letter has been read among you, so it was expected when the letter arrived to Colossae, the brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ would gather around and they would read the letter, and Epaphras most likely would read the letter and give instruction uh, and teaching, very much like we're doing today. 
Now it would have been looked a lot different, but it's maybe not unlike what we do today in the sense that I read the letter, I give instruction based on how I know it, and we read the scripture of God. Now at that time, they're viewing this letter as being written by Paul himself. Paul's written this from prison. So he says, let this letter be read among you. Have it also read among the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. Now some actually know that as the lost letter of Laodicea for in your Bible you won't find a letter to Laodicea. Uh, But it's mentioned there that at some point a letter was written to that church. Then verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. And then verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He says, I'll finish this end. Then he says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul is writing from chains in prison most likely many would say from Rome at this time. And he writes this letter that is full of Jesus Christ. So then if you go back to the very beginning of the letter, the verse, first three verses, you find that this phrase that he begins with. He says, I'm writing to you in the very beginning. He says, I'm writing to you saints and faithful brothers. Now that could be really brothers and sisters, this idea of the church. In Christ, it says. You see that? In Christ at Colossae. We tend to skip over those phrases and like I said, this is a a little deep dive here but when you look at that really short phrase in Christ, that prepositional phrase, in Christ, you will find that phrase in relation to in Christ, maybe the phrase in him, in whom, those phrases, you'll find that all over the book of Colossians. So a fun study if you wanna do today, later, maybe in your small groups, take your Bible Underline every time you see in Christ, in him, in whom. Because you'll find that there is a, every page. In whom we have redemption. In him all things were created. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We are reconciled in his body of flesh. In whom are hidden all treasures. Walk in him, rooted and built up in him. In him we have the fullness, uh, fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have been filled in him. In him you were raised up, triumphing over them in him, pleasing in the Lord, fellow servant of the Lord. Passage over and over, and that was just a few of them. So there is a real sense that Jesus is the Messiah. For remember the word in him is also saying this idea when he says you are the saints in Christ. What is that word Christ? Christian, Christ. We know that word to also be Messiah. He is the embodiment of the Jewish Messiah that was sent. The entire Old Testament is being leading itself up to this point where Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God would represent all of mankind, hang on a cross and rise again. Right? The Messiah, the Savior. So when they say you are a Christian or when he says you are in Christ, He is making a statement of bold declaration and rebellion against Rome. For just a mere 30 or so years before, Jesus hung on a cross when this was written. So people reading this are very well well aware of all that Rome is capable of. All that Rome is powerful enough with its iron fist to take believers, persecution, and at this time, this was even starting to grow and get worse and worse. Emperor Nero and all of these things that eventually happened of taking Christians, making them into public statements and martyrs. 
So when he says you are in Christ, it is not a mere Christian phrase that we toss aside, but it is a phrase that has great meaning and great depth for it envelops all of the Old Testament in the forecoming and the foretelling of that Messiah that was to come. That Messiah that we all long for, that now we, in that Messiah, in that Christ, we find ourselves in Christ, in that faith of Jesus Christ. We abide with him, we follow him, we learn of him, and he lives, in a sense, within, through the Spirit of God. So we pledge ourselves to Christos, to Christ, to the Messiah. In the same manner a Roman citizen would pledge themselves, I pledge allegiance to Rex. You know, Rex. This idea of Rex is this Roman emperor, the term. So the um, I don't even know all those terms with this idea of the Rex, right? This idea of the emperor, the leader, the president, the king. This idea here for us as Christians, we pledge ourselves to Christ. Bold statements. He's writing this to the Colossians at Colossae. This book is jam-packed full of all these things. It's very similar to Ephesians. This book could also be likened to uh, the book of Romans. You could say Ephesians is a mini Romans and Colossians is a mini Ephesians. And we find in this book, as we look, I just want to focus on one word here and then three other ones. This first word is in verse three. It says we thank God. Another study you can do, look through the book of Colossians and find everywhere it mentions thanksgiving, to give thanks and to be thankful and to find thanksgiving within you and to thank God. So Paul says, I thank God the Father for you, my church, since I've heard about things from you. What does he say he's heard about them? Is I thank God for you because what? Three things. It's Paul's probably three favorite words besides the phrase in Christ. He mentions three favorite words that he uses all over the place. All his writings. He's constantly throwing the triad, this Christian virtue triad. You'll find them in your Bibles. You can look at it. You can find it. It says faith, love, hope. Now you might be more familiar with passages in like 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the love chapter, where it begins and ends there with this idea of love. But it says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. And the greatest of these is love. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. Three. And here we find this very important way he organizes it and what he's saying. He says he kind of puts them in a different order that's maybe most traditional for Paul. But he says, since we have heard of your faith in whom? In Christ. There's that phrase again. Then he says, of the love that you have for one another because, I love that, verse five. The booth could put up verse five there of Colossians 1, 5. You have this word because, Right? So he says, I, I see your faith in Jesus, in Christ, and I see your love for one another because of something. I, I, I find that fascinating. When you look at this, it's as if he's telling you why it is we have this faith in Christ and love that exemplifies itself outwardly because we're standing on something. We have a foundation. We have this concrete stage in which I am standing on. There's a foundation in which supports this. And this entire building is built on a foundation. Concrete foundation, you better believe it, right? You know? All right, amen, preach it. Okay, concrete foundation. 
it all stands and is upheld with that. And so all that we see, the faith that we have in Christ, the love that you have within one another is standing on the foundation of what does Paul say our foundation is on? Because of hope. Because of hope that is laid up for us in heaven. It is preserved for us in heaven. It cannot be, it cannot rust, it cannot be stolen, it cannot be lost. It is a hope that we have that is real. It is, I literally have in my notes, a concrete hope. It is hope, right? It is something that is tangible, it is hard, it is physical, it is real. It is not a wishfulness. Man, I hope so. It's a reality. And Paul is saying that is what we stand on today. Our physical anticipation. We are waiting for something we know to be sure. And it is a hope that our entire faith rests upon and our entire motivation for love is energized from. And it is from the hope of Jesus Christ the hope that we have preserved for us in heaven, which is the realm of God, his authority as he stands on high. He is the God of the universe. All things revolve around him. It is from that place that God is preserving for you and for me a hope that cannot be taken away, a hope that is in the heaven. And that message of faith in Christ, love for one another, and a hope that cannot be taken away, that we cannot lose, even in the darkest of times when we experience loss, we have a hope that cannot be lost. That encapsulated is also then explained in a word we use all the time in church. You'll see it in the next verse. Or really at the end of that verse, sorry. It says what? The word of truth, the gospel, right? The gospel, the good news, the good news of the kingdom of God. That Jesus is king. He has conquered the grave and he has come to save you and me. The whole world, this gospel message goes out to, to. It says, in fact, that this word of truth, the gospel goes out in the next verse. Next verse, verse six, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, this, word, this gospel message has come to. And it is bearing fruit. It is increasing. It is as if we have mentioned even the last couple of days that the seed of the body that is planted in the ground grows one day to bear fruit and to be ri- rise again. The gospel message is likened to that of a seed planted into the ground. It doesn't look like much when it goes down. But believe me, the fruit that it bears will bless the entire world. Our faith in Christ, our love for one another, our hope that we stand on and our entire faith is built upon, the hope that cannot be taken from us is then going out. It is increasing. It is bearing fruit through the word of the gospel. And the gospel does not exist without Jesus Christ. The gospel is central around and built upon and foundational to Jesus Christ. For it is a seed that is productive, it is increasing, it is bearing fruit, it is going through the entire world to the ends of the earth. The gospel goes out. And it is only by, I love this word in verse, in verse six, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since this day that you heard it and you understood it. You remember those days when you heard the gospel, you understood the gospel, and it now bears fruit And now you have this and we have all of this, faith, hope, love, gospel, all these, heaven, all this amazing thing. How is this? Because of what? The grace of God. The grace of God. We've understood it by the grace of God. By the grace of God go I. I live, I move, I have my being. I have any awareness of the truth today. I stand on this platform to you today 
only by the grace of God. Do you, do you believe that? <laughs> that, that? That is truly central because the grace of Jesus Christ comes to you today. It comes to you today by simply being allowed to encounter God's word in the manner that you do today. And yes, there's a lot going on in the busy lives that we experience, but God's grace is being richly poured out to you today by giving you an awareness of his existence, of his truth, and his salvation, and his amazing gift of salvation. The grace of God, pure grace. We do not deserve this amazing, most beautiful thing. So in conclusion, I just want us to, in a sense, just bask in God's glory today. Just focus on Jesus Christ today. Allow ourselves to to think on those three words and maybe you can leave from this place in your small groups later or in your family groups or in your personal study. You allow yourself to just dwell and focus and think on the faith that you have in Christ, the love that should be present among us for one another and the hope of glory, the living hope that as Peter says, we're born again to a living hope. That in the sense that this hope will not put us to shame. God will have the last word. Your faith will not return empty. Your love for others is not a waste. God's word, your faith in Jesus, your devotion to Christ is not, as Colossians says, this pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. It's not a wish dream or a joke, but it is a living hope, a physical reality and a spiritual life. God will have the last word for all things are centered and revolve around him. So no matter what happens, no matter what you're going through, where you're walking, what you have encountered this week or what you are dreading coming this week, the way of love, the way of Jesus and, and our devotion and trust and faith in him, our love for the church, our faith in God, which looks like the way of Jesus, will not put you to shame and it will not fail you. But in the end, you will be honored and rewarded for your faith even though presently we may find persecution and scorn. But what matters is not the present comfort but the future hope on which we stand that fuels our faith in Christ and motivates our love for one another. So I pray for you today and I long for all of us to grasp these theological insights that allow us to press on, to keep on pressing on, that our faith would be strong in Christ, our love would be fervent and active for one another because of the hope of glory, our living hope that we have been born again through a living hope. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you today kind of in my sense, Lord, even in my heart, feel as if what I can't fully describe all that you have presented to us. I can't find the words to describe how central you are to all of our existence. God, forgive us when we don't even know what to say. But God, I thank you that you are alive and you are real. And God, there are many things out there that are stealing away our attention. Help me, God. My mind wanders. I don't put you as center. My marriage and my life. But allow me to recognize and allow us as a group, as a community, as we gather here today to see you in a light that we've never seen before, in a way that is real, in a way that changes us.
We praise you, God, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.